0: Good morning, everybody. Hear me, okay? Good morning. Uh, thank you all so much for being here at this early hour of the morning to talk about collections management policy. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, my name is Catherine Malone France. I'm the vice president for historic sites at the National Trust, uh, and I'm joined this morning by two wonderful colleagues, Tom Mays, who's the deputy. General Counsel at the National Trust, and David Young, who is the Executive Director of Cliveden, which is a National Trust historic site in Germantown, Pennsylvania, and was a merit award winner last night at the, at the awards ceremony. Um, we are here to talk a little bit about <coughs> excuse me, the, um, the process we've gone through over the past two years to revise the collections management policy of the National Trust. You know, we titled this presentation Radical Common Sense because we wanted to capture those two reactions that we've gotten um, as, we've, as we've vetted and revised and vetted and revised this over the past two years. Um, in some quarters, uh, particularly in the museum field and historic sites and house museums, some of the the ideas um, that we've talked about and that are in this policy are considered a little bit radical. But then at other times, as we've talked about this in the broader field of preservation, the public in general, sometimes people sort of look at us and say, well, of course that's what you've done. Of course that's how you, you manage these places. Of course that's how you steward your historic sites and landscapes and buildings and collections. So We really wanted to capture with this title that sort of tension and dichotomy that we really found throughout this process and that we thought really enriched it and was very important to talk about. So what I'll do first is talk a little bit just about the basic changes we made, our process, what inspired us to do this, and what we looked at as we were doing it. But before I go into that, I want to acknowledge that, you know, Tom and I were the principal authors of this revised collections management policy, but we really build on the work of other people at the National Trust and in this field. And I think it's particularly important to acknowledge one of those people, Jim Vaughn. You know, if you were in Quinterino's session yesterday, uh, he acknowledged Jim's importance in this as well. Jim is, of course, a former vice president of the National Trust for Historic Sites. Um, he's well known in AASLH and now works for the state of Pennsylvania. But his sort of, I don't know, his, his creativity and his willingness to talk about both sanity and stewardship in collections uh, really gave all of us, Tom and I included, I think the intellectual space and cover Um, to have some really frank conversations about our collections management policy and to consider it in really a new way. Um, And so we owe him and others in this field a tremendous debt. Uh, When we started this process, our collections management policy had last been revised in 2004, so we were a little overdue. Um, uh, I think we're supposed to be revising it every four years by the policy. Our process really took about 24 months. Um, and the revisions were approved by our Board of Trustees in June of 2014. I want to just hit sort of the two big changes in the policy, then we'll talk a little bit about rationale, and then Tom's going to talk about um, the sort of ethical considerations, and David will talk about the implementation. But really, the two chief changes were what you see here, that historic structures and landscapes, if they are interpreted for the public, and that's so important to this, if they are interpreted for the public, are now included in the museum collection. So this, for us, created a parity between historic structures, historic landscapes, and our object collection. And then the second large change was that disposition proceeds, and by that I mean the proceeds from the sale of objects within the collection, that those disposition proceeds could be extended to the direct care of anything in the collection, historic structures, historic landscapes, and our object collection, with the qualifier that those disposition proceeds would stay at the site where they were generated, except in extreme situations. As we, So we came up with these two major changes, and they really both, for us, hung on the idea, and you'll hear Tom and I go back to this again and again, they hung on the idea that we hold and interpret our historic structures and landscapes and object for the benefit of the public. And public benefit really became the very strong structure on which we built this new collections management policy. As we did, we were very conscious, even in the sort of revision and vetting process, that we wanted to be very public about this, very transparent about this, um, to do so in order to make sure this was rigorously vetted and that we'd had input from around the field, but also because we felt like this was a way in which we could really provide leadership for historic sites and house museums around the country. And we were encouraged throughout the process to do so, particularly by AAM and AASLH. So, you know, when Tom and I started this process, um, I guess in 2000, late 2011, um, we, we really thought the context was particularly interesting. You know, there was a lot of talk at the time about historic house museums and the challenges they were facing. Um, you see some illustrations here. Upsala is a historic house museum in Germantown, Pennsylvania, uh, that, was, that was closing and the National Trust actually acquired, and David is going to talk a little bit about that. You see in the bottom a closed sign at a California State Parks, but around the country you had a reduction in state and federal funding. Um, you had parks uh, and historic sites closing. Um, And you also had people starting to think about what were innovations for historic house museums and historic sites, Um, innovations large and small. You see Donna Harris's book here. But again, lots of smart people were thinking about and continue to be thinking about how to reimagine historic sites and house museums for their long-term sustainability. And at the same time, you know, I think we were all seeing a real demonstration of the resiliency of these institutions as well, of the strength and of the ways in which they matter deeply to their communities and the ways in which their staffs and boards were willing to think creatively and holistically and in new ways about their operations, their stewardship, and their long-term sustainability. So I think we really both felt like We wanted a collections management policy that supported all of that kind of work, particularly in this context. So we also, though, while we had a larger context of sort of the whole field of historic sites and house museums, we also looked at our own portfolio. Uh, So these are sort of the National Trust portfolio of historic sites um, by the numbers. Uh, The the properties we own, uh, the landscapes, the structures, the objects, our significant archaeological collection, and then our affiliated sites. You know, we own a tremendous array of things. When you see here, of course, at the top, Uh, Philip Johnson's Glass House, and, you know, that's sort of a, a seminal moment in American design and has a tremendously important art collection. Sort of on the other end of the spectrum, you have a place like Drayton Hall, built almost exactly 200 years earlier in South Carolina, but again, this sort of seminal moment in American design. But then, also, across our portfolio, a host of other structures. This is the bank barn at, um, at Belgrove, and we do own many, many barns at the National Trust. Um, but, you know, we really also wanted a collections management policy that reflected the truth of what we steward. Buildings, landscapes, and objects. And that reflected the mission of the National Trust as a preservation organization. So um, my colleagues at the National Trust know that I love John Russell, uh, the, the New York Times art critic, so much. But you know, again, as we, we really looked at the sort of big picture of our portfolio, but we also dug into individual sort of sites and what their collections were like. And again and again, we came back to the incredible diversity within the collection, again, as long as it was viewed as buildings, landscapes, and objects. But what we also saw was that those objects, buildings, landscapes, and structures, were all interrelated in the way that we steward them and in the way that we interpret both for all of them for public benefit. So, I mean, at the top left, you see the uh, Tang Dynasty Bodhisattva at Kaiket, which is a beautiful work of art in its own, but it's particularly placed, too, in that beautiful Hudson Valley landscape that surrounds Kaiket, and they are, in a really interesting way, connected. Um, You also see, you know, the landscapes we own range from the Shenandoah Valley that you see in the bottom center, uh, agricultural landscapes there, to the highly designed uh, gardens of Filoli, which, of course, are not just landscapes, but they are landscapes shot through with collections and buildings. You see some statues and the the garden pavilion in the distance there. Um, You know, our structures, again, not just houses, not just barns. Philip Johnson's doghouse, uh, there at the top right, um, a lime kiln in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, again, just a, a host of different kinds of structures, again, all held for public benefit. And then, you know, objects, everything from saddles that were made in Mexico City, exhibited in Paris, and found their way to Monterey, California. To in the bottom left, um, Kalana Ware in the archaeological collection at Drayton Hall. So again, we wanted a collections management policy that acknowledged the, the realities uh, and the potential of our stewardship and our interpretation of all of these things together. We also took some really specific examples that, that for us highlighted the reason we needed to do the reasons we needed to do this and sort of the, the unintended consequences. Of our existing collections management policy. So here's Lyndhurst, which is of course an amazing Gothic Revival residence in Tarrytown, New York. Um, you know, designed by A.J. Davis, not only the building, but many of the, the furnishings and the interiors, and placed in a landscape that exemplifies the, the picturesque and the beautiful in American landscape design, but all of it one composition. And that was the case at so many of our sites. Um, On the the right, you see the the interior of the painting gallery, the art gallery at um, Lindhurst, which was another point where we really started to consider, you know, that gave us a reason to consider how we looked at all of these things. Of course, there's beautiful artwork, there's spectacular furnishings in there, but there is also stained glass, wood carvings, plaster work that really could be considered, should be considered... Works of art in their own right. The only thing that prevented us from treating them like pieces of the collection was that they were physically attached to the building. So that Lindhurst was really a, a key for us in, in realizing why we needed to rethink this philosophically. But when we took a closer look at stained glass at Lindhurst, particularly. We saw again these sort of unintended consequences of the collections management policy as it was written. So you see some examples of Lyndhurst's beautiful stained glass here. Spectacular, it's throughout the property. it's one of the things that everyone who visits Lyndhurst hears about. We have some disposition proceeds at Lyndhurst, but because of the way our collections management policy was written, three of these pieces of stained glass, which were in the building, could not be conserved using those funds because they were in the building. But the piece that you see at the bottom right, which was in collection storage, could actually be conserved with those disposition proceeds, but it was in collection storage, never to be seen or um, by the public or to provide them any benefit. So, the stained glass at Lyndhurst became, again, a real point for us to think through not only sort of the philosophical reasons we needed to change this policy, but sort of the practical implications of it and those unintended consequences. Also, looking around our portfolio, you know, we saw properties like Woodlawn and Pope Leahy that provided other, other sort of intellectual cues for us to think this through, Woodlawn, which is the the house on the left that you see, um, built in 1805 on land that was part of George Washington's estate that he gave to his nephew and his wife, uh, designed by William Thornton, and came to the National Trust in the early 50s as its very first historic site. Really came essentially without a collection. So the primary artifact that we were originally charged with stewarding was this building and its surrounding landscape. That's certainly the case at others of our properties. Um, President Lincoln's cottage treats their buildings as their primary artifact and does a fantastic interpretation around that idea. Drayton Hall, of course, does the same thing, that building being the primary artifact, but we saw a real disconnect that here were these sites that were treating these buildings as primary artifacts and we didn't have a collections management policy that acknowledged that. And then you have examples like Pope Leahy, um, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright Usonian home that sits on the same property as Woodlawn. It was moved there to avoid its demolition. Um, And this one, you know, reminded us two things. Of course it's Frank Lloyd Wright, so you can't miss the fact that the building and the landscape are interconnected, right? That it's, it's hard to even think about interpreting them or stewarding them without being without them being interconnected. But the other thing about Pope Leahy was, of course, many of the furnishings inside were either made from the same materials as the rest of the interior of the house, or they were physically connected to the house. So again, we wanted to develop a policy that acknowledged that that relationship, and in fact, that absolute connection. So we started this policy I mean we started this process, as I said, about two years ago, and I want to pause again to acknowledge um, the assistance particularly of AAM and AASLH in giving us, um, not sort of blindly supporting this at all, but giving us um, a number of different venues in which we could talk about this across the field and receive incredibly productive. Feedback at everyone. I also want to acknowledge um, our wonderful National Trust site directors, one of whom is here today, David Young, but we also benefited so much from being able to vet that with them in a variety of conversations. Um, and then to be able to have really specific conversations with both the Accreditation Commission and the Standard and Ethics Committee here at AASLH. And then finally, also, our Board of Trustees at the National Trust. We chose to have a very sort of slow and deliberate approval process with them. We went to them with concept first, and then we went back to them with the actual policy because, again, we wanted a long period of deliberation. We did not want to just hand them a policy and say you need to approve this, but we wanted to really have a conversation, and we did with them about this, Um, and we're going to continue, and Tom will talk about this a little bit more, we're going to continue to have this very public conversation about this, but again, I do want to acknowledge there were a lot of people, uh, Janet Vaughn, Bob Beatty, Cherie Cook, who all helped us a great deal and provided us with ways to talk to the field about this. So with that, I will turn this over to Tom Mays. But before I do, I will say you know, that one of the reasons I think the National Trust was so, um, such the right organization to do this, not only because we own a portfolio of sites and we're a preservation organization, but because of the incredible legal division of the National Trust. It was um, a tremendous resource that we brought to bear on that. And you'll see, as Tom talks, their combination of, of intellectual rigor and pragmatism really sets them apart. And it was, it was absolutely key to the success of this. Tom Mays won the Rome Prize in the middle of this and ran off to Rome. Other people from the, the legal division picked up, and then he came back. But it was truly um, a resource that we brought to this that I think was unique.
1: Thank you, Catherine. With that introduction, it, it, it <laughs> makes me think, hmm, what does she need from me this <laughs> weekend? Um, thank you all. Uh, I wanted to... Um, go over the ethical standards with you and talk about how we looked at this with with regard to the ethical standards. Obviously, as we were looking at this change, as Catherine has highlighted, we had historically only applied disposition proceeds to the care of objects, to the direct care of objects. And this was a, a radical change, hence the word in the title of this session, where we would begin to apply disposition proceeds to buildings and landscapes as well. So one of the primary concerns we felt like we had to grapple with was, does this fit within the ethical standards? And we looked at two primary standards. We looked at the AAM standards and the AASLH standards. And if you bear with me, I'm going to do a little bit of reading about this, just to remind you what the key standard language is and how we analyzed it and again, to, um, to reiterate something Catherine said, we didn't do this in a vacuum. We did it in conversation with AAM and with AASLH all throughout the process to make sure that they were comfortable with where we came out. So I'm going to look at the AAM standard first. And here are the, the two key provisions that we thought were absolutely critical The museum ensures that the collections in its custody support the mission and public trust responsibilities. Catherine emphasized that throughout this, we were really informed by the idea that these things that we hold, we hold for the benefit of the public. So, as we thought about applying things to applying disposition proceeds for um, buildings and landscapes. We would only do that for those that were within the um, uh, public trust, i.e. being held for the benefit of the public. And here's the key language. Proceeds from the sale of non-living collections are to be used consistent with the established standards of the museum's discipline, but in no event shall they be used for anything other than acquisition or direct care of collections. Direct care of collections is the language that we all are very familiar with and that keeps getting uh, reiterated. There are two parts of this that AAM specifically asked us to explore. First, what's the established standard of the museum's discipline? And secondly, what is your collection? And in looking at this, the way we thought it through was... As far as we're concerned as a historic preservation organization, we hold the buildings and the landscapes uh, for the benefit of the public in exactly the same way that we hold the collections, that the objects really should not be given a different standard of care from the buildings and landscapes. All of them together, as Catherine emphasized with um, showing you Pope Lay House or Lyndhurst, um, or Kiket, are really part of one whole thing, all of which we're holding for the benefit of the public and interpreting to the public. So uh, what we looked at was accessioning uh, our collections and our collections to include these historically significant buildings and landscapes. And again, we tied that notion to the uh, idea that we would only include in our definition of collections those that were interpreted to the public. So that is the the way we apply the AAM standard. Um, AASLH has this language. Collections shall not be accessioned or disposed of in order to provide financial support for institutional operations, facilities maintenance, or any reason other than preservation or acquisition of collections as defined by institutional policy. It's not exactly the same language, but it's got some comparable concepts in it. So as we looked at it again, we thought uh, if we treat our buildings and landscapes, historically significant buildings and landscapes, as part of the collections, because we're interpreting to the, uh, them to the public, we are using them in the same way, we're holding them out in the same way, um, then we should be able to apply those disposition proceeds to the care of uh, the buildings and landscapes in the same way that we would apply them to the care of an object. And the the primary example that really s- drove this home for us was the Lindhurst uh, stained glass where it just did not make any sense for us to be holding a pot of money for the care of our collections and not being able to apply that to the care of stained glass that's actually embedded in the building uh, as opposed to stained glass that had been removed from the building. So that is the manner in which we applied these ethical standards, and we presented these to the accreditation committee of uh, AAM, and to the AASLH Ethics and um, uh, Standards Committee, and both of them felt like these concepts were consistent with the ethical standards for the field. So how did we actually do this in the collections management policy? I'm not going to read all of this, but I wanted to emphasize a couple of, of concepts When we rewrote the policy, we wrote in these ideas that we wouldn't apply these disposition proceeds to everything that we owned. We would only apply it to things that were interpreted to the public. So for a landscape or for a building to actually be eligible to benefit from the use of disposition proceeds... uh, Uh, It has to be something that's held for, owned by the National Trust, and interpreted for and accessible to the public. Actually has to be held that way. And that is written into the policy itself. We expressly wrote in here that if it's not held for the benefit of the public, it's not going to be treated as being part of the collection. So that's going to be excluded from it. The next critical thing that we really did was... Um, We continue the language that said, and I'm going to read this, so bear with me. Um, Proceeds from the sale of deaccessioned objects from the museum collections at a National Trust Historic Site may be used for, one, the replenishment and care of other objects within the museum collections at that site, just as we always had, and or the preservation of historic structures or historic landscape features that are a part of the historic structures and landscapes collection of the site. So we expressly wrote that in to make sure that everybody involved in the organization will um, only apply it that way, that it will not be applied just for a maintenance shed or for uh, regular cleaning or something like that. Um, We really wanted to make sure that it was quite expressed the way we, we wrote this in. There were other changes that were put in place really to provide protections uh, and to make sure that uh, this continued to be applied in a manner that's consistent with our philosophy here, which was built on the public trust. First, there were changes in the chain of authority, and that really was about our board insisting that they continue to provide oversight. So board oversight over the actions of the Historic Sites uh, Department and over our Collections Committee, which is a staff committee, were strengthened. Um, There were also additions to our Collections Committee. I'm going to go over the makeup of that Collections Committee. Um, And one of the other things we did was that we removed a hierarchy we had had for disposition methods. Uh, We had originally written into our policy the notion that, first, disposition proceeds would be, uh, first, uh, things would be disposed of by transfer to other National Trust historic sites. Then, if that wasn't um, necessary or desired, it would go to other public institutions. If that wasn't necessary or desired, it would then be sold um, and um, proceeds placed in the disposition fund. We removed that hierarchy because the reality was we uh, found that it wasn't a very practical application of things, and it's not the way things usually turned out anyway. So now all of those are available from the outset, and we don't have to go through them one by one. Our uh, board also insisted that we put in a requirement that prior to disposing of anything, uh, there had to be an opinion of value or an appraisal. So by the time uh, the recommendation goes up to our uh, board subcommittee, um, uh, we have to have some sense of what the value of the piece is. And um, we had a lot of discussion around this because of the concern that um, putting a value on it might make it appear that we were selling it because of the value or putting a value on it might suggest that we were choosing things of high value so that we could generate income. Um, But as we talked this through, we realized that actually our board simply wanted to know the value of things so that they could make an appropriate and fully informed decision, which makes sense to me. Um, but it always has to be uh, combined with that cautionary note of we're still not disposing of things just to generate income. We're only disposing of things because they've gone through the rigorous uh, deaccessioning process to begin with. So uh, then you get to this whole idea of how do you avoid cherry picking and how do you make sure that uh, things aren't going to be disposed of just to keep the lights on. Um, and we put in a a number of protections, some of which were already in our deaccessioning provisions of the collections management policy, uh, but we strengthened them and highlighted them. First of all, and the key thing is, the intellectual process of going through the deaccessioning process is no different from it ever was, from how it ever was. In other words, something is proposed for deaccessioning only because it no longer fits within the site's uh, collections management plan. And we since then have also strengthened uh, our um, uh, encouragement for our sites to complete collections management plans for their individual sites. Um, So that process will remain separate from the process of what the ultimate use of the disposition proceeds is. Completely separate processes decided at separate times. Um, So that intellectual rigor will still be in place. The other thing uh, we did, as I said before, was strengthen the the collections committee itself. And we added some people to the collections uh, committee, as I'll I'll share with you in a moment. Um, We also wrote in specifically the reasons that things could be deaccessioned, and uh, here's what it says. An object is only considered for deaccessioning. It's found to be damaged or destroyed, is determined to be unrelated to the scope of collecting for that site, does not support the mission or interpretation of the site, or has been irreversibly altered beyond interpretive use. Um, So I just want to emphasize over and over again Uh, The two processes about the use of the disposition proceeds and the deaccessioning decision are completely separate processes. The Collections Committee, um, I said that it was strengthened. Um, It had always uh, been a staff committee. It still is a staff committee, but um, it has uh, Carrie Villar on it, who's here in the audience, who's our Director of Collections. Um, And we added the Graham Gund Architect, who's the architect for the National Trust, because now they'll be a part of the decisions about um, deaccessioning things and ultimately about the use of proceeds when that question comes back to the committee. Um, And uh, I have always advised the committee, but... I I was added as a formal member of the committee, and this is the committee that is charged really with making the initial decision about whether to recommend deaccessioning and also ultimately to recommend the use of disposition proceeds. So this is the committee that will be an important um, uh, body to decide does this actually meet the uh, definition of direct care is the use of proceeds. In this case, uh, going to meet the, the decision of uh, whether it is actually direct care of, of collections. So they will approve um, all deaccessioning requests, all accessioning requests, and the proposed methods for uh, disposal and ultimately the use of the funds. And that again is a critical protection to make sure that we're we're doing this properly. I wanted to show this slide really to highlight the type of materials that are necessary for us to approve a deaccessioning. We don't deaccession lightly. We uh, you know, encourage sites to go through the process to deaccession things that should be deaccessioned, but the process is fairly rigorous, and this is an example of the documentation that's necessary to do it. Um, it has to be... Um, an extensive set of materials about what it is, where it came from, uh, whether the title is clear, whether we have uh, good records for it, and how it fits or doesn't fit into the site's uh, collections philosophy and plan going forward. So again, that's going to be a completely separate decision from the use of the proceeds. I wanted to emphasize that we're not the first organization to do this. Other organizations have included landscapes and buildings in their collections, and I show two examples. On the left is Eldridge Street Synagogue in New York, which specifically accessioned um, objects that were attached to the building but within the building, and they actually did it through creating a list, a specific list of those um, those fixtures, things like the Uh, chandeliers and other of the religious objects that are attached to the building. Um, Ours is a little bit different where we're treating the building as a whole as part of the collection. And uh, uh, the Preservation Society of Newport, uh, which uh, specifically accessioned those mansions because of course the mansions as a whole are the primary thing that they interpret and that that they hold for the benefit of the public. Um, I also want to distinguish some of the other things that are often in the paper and that we hear about. Um, A lot of the controversies around deaccessioning arise not really in the museum field or not in, um, in the traditional museum field. So many of the things that we hear about arise from city collections or from university collections. And there, um, you know, one reason I wanted to draw a distinction is because um, those collections are sometimes held not really for the same purposes that we hold collections, Um, particularly educational institutions hold those collections for their broader educational mission. So when you're thinking about trying to fulfill what the fundamental fiduciary responsibilities are to the public, universities have a different fundamental fiduciary responsibility to the public than traditional museums do. And they are trying to fulfill their educational mission more broadly than than a traditional museum is. So when you read about these things, try to um, think through, is this something that really applies to the sort of organization or institution that we are? Or are they a different type of organization, uh, a a university or a city, that might be in a different situation? they are also... um, unusual things that come up. Detroit, and what's been happening in Detroit, is, uh, is the result of Detroit going into bankruptcy and the manner in which those objects were held. Still a museum, but that is really complicated by the idea that it's in bankruptcy. Uh, the other case that's been uh, quite present in the news recently is uh, the Corcoran and the split-up of the Corcoran where, um, again, the trustees have just gotten approval there to actually divide the collections and distribute the collections to the National Gallery of Art um, and to distribute the building to uh, George Washington University. Um, I won't take an opinion about whether I support or don't support that decision, but recognize that um, they are going through a responsible process of figuring out what happens to the collections and finding a home for those collections that's appropriate. Um, The benefits of this new approach. First and foremost, foremost, it strengthens the entire National Trust collection. And it really reflects the preservation mission of the National Trust. Um, And I can't emphasize enough how it evens the playing field between the buildings, the landscapes, and the objects, and treats them equivalently because they're all being held for the same purpose and they all have the same importance to us as an institution and to the public as a whole. Uh, And in that sense, it really enhances the public benefit. Uh, We should be able to uh, uh, more effectively meet our responsibilities because of this change in the policy. And uh, finally, we think this also provides leadership in the field. Uh, We're we're happy to talk to other institutions that are interested in doing this, particularly for the historic house museum area. We would would be happy to share any information we have about this with others who are thinking about accessioning their buildings or landscapes. Um, Catherine mentioned this earlier, but... One of the things that we committed to do both uh, to our trustees and to AAM and AASLH is to share the way we are doing this, how we came about the idea of doing it, but also how it plays out in the implementation. So one of the things we heard throughout this discussion was, how are you really going to define what direct care is? And we left that uh, largely undefined in the policy itself because partly we are relying on the judgment of our collections committee and our trustees going forward to make sure that we're uh, applying this policy and implementing this policy in a manner that's consistent with the, um, with the underlying ethical values. So we're going to be sharing that information and sharing how we implement it as we go forward. And we just had a call with our site directors, as, as Aaron and uh, David can attest, where we said, look, don't bring us requests for the use of these disposition proceeds that are way out of left field. Let's start with some things that are really safe where the entire field will agree that this actually does fulfill our direct care responsibilities. Um, And with that, I'm going to turn it over to David Young.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, I just want to uh, thank uh, Catherine and Tom for having me on this uh, panel and to uh, be uh, here in St. Paul. I also want to thank you for all the good work you're doing giving life to history in your communities. How many of you have heard of Cliveden or been to Cliveden? How many of you have been to Cliveden? (laughs) All right, so uh, Cliveden is on Cliveden Street. And in 2005, uh, it merged with Uppsala, which is a historic site across the street. Upsala is a historic house museum where nothing historic happened. And it was built in 1798. Um, Cliveden was built in 1767. Upsala is uh, considered an ex- excellent example of federal architectural style. And they're both in the historic Germantown section of Philadelphia. Um, Upon the merger, Clibden changed its mission to take visitor out and put community in. To make the uh, mission succinct, it really comes down to our purpose is to make history useful using our buildings, landscape, stories to build a pride of place to help enhance vibrant communities in greater Germantown. So we define communities and usefulness in the uh, embedded mission. And this represented a big change uh, to go from a colonial house museum of a velvet rope tour to a much more uh, community-based forum and community center for understanding the meaning of the past. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about the relation of the um, collections policy with an eye toward the practical implications for site directors and historic sites Uh, and the management issues. Uh, And this is important to be careful, as Tom was saying, because of the troubling examples we've had in uh, the recent uh, um, papers, uh, and certainly in Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley, there are a few recent examples, like the Philadelphia History Museum or the Delaware Art Museum, using the disposition of um, deaccession funds to uh, uh, pay for uh, operating deficits and uh, heating and lighting. So our change in mission and broadened community focus led, first of all, to Cliveden's first ever scope of collections policy. The scope of collections combined the um, what Cliveden would collect as well as what we would collect related to Uppsala. So this meant things related to the event that most significant event that happened at Cliveden, which is the 1777 battle of Germantown which we reenact on October 4 and lose at noon and 3. Um, The uh, the Chu family that owned Cliveden and the Johnson family that owned Uppsala became uh, the central components of the revised scope of collections that was uh, undertaken and we're 40 years as a museum and this was really our first solid scope of collections that was longer than a paragraph but it would include anything related to the households and history of the battle the household and history of the Chews and the household and history of the Johnsons. And that includes the Chews household related to uh, the many plantations that the Chews owned and its history of chattel slavery, um, which is our part of our revised interpretation. We've been doing a lot of revising at Clivedon in the last 10 years. So upon the revised scope of collection, we realized that there were hundreds of artifacts in Uppsala that didn't apply to either the Chew story or the Johnson story or the story of the Battle of Germantown. This resulted in a deaccession process, and Tom mentioned rigorous. I would use capital R in that. It was a 28-month, by-the-book, rigorous process that involved vetting from the Cliveden Collections Committee, the Cliveden Board of Directors, the Cliveden Education Committee, the Cliveden Preservation Committee, even before we took it, to the National Trust Collections Committee. And in that process, um, I think we deaccessioned something like 252 artifacts, and Carrie can help me with this, Um, uh, we uh, ended up giving artifacts to 12 sibling organizations uh, in the local and regional community, historical societies, other house museums, Um, and the culmination of the 28-month by-the-book deaccession project was a sale of roughly 119 artifacts uh, at Freeman's in March of 2011. So there's a pot of money now from that sale, and um, we uh, still have about 500 artifacts in Uppsala. About 100 of them have nothing to do with the Johnsons or the Chews. So there are still some things that don't necessarily apply. Now meanwhile, while we were doing this, Clibden, which had a decades-long history of rising damp, underwent a Save America's Treasures project of $822,000 to install a humidostatically controlled environmental system that uh, helps save the variety of collections in the Clibden building. At that time, the thought was, we'll move everything in the collections that aren't on display in the house across the street to Uppsala, so Uppsala was sort of collection storage. That HVAC project, which is probably better understood as an $800,000 plan to put a new boiler in, um, but it, was a, 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 it has worked so well that now it is possible to bring collections back to Cliveden and store these collections in areas that aren't on view to the public, like the third floor garret. Uh, and these are some of the collections that we're talking about. And this is the garret. So the third floor garret has proven to be economical and efficient. It's actually cleaner. It's easier to keep clean. But um, our thought is to bring before the Collections Committee of the National Trust a test case for how to use disposition funds by making sure that the garret is appropriate for storing collections that are over at Uppsala now. And these are a variety of things, like textiles, uh, porcelain, furnishings, even some archeological fragments. Um, that, and they are also things like cushions from the 1940s and some flotsam and jetsam from kitchens in the 1960s. So um, to get the garret um, tr- truly up to speed in terms of collection storage, we need filtered uh, screens for the windows the windows which have really bad sills, and um, there's uh, still a lot of detritus from a failed roof that was replaced in 2005 at the cost of $150,000. That, um, to turn the garret into a bit of a collection storage means a little bit more investment. And the question is, can we use the disposition funds to help us in the process of making Cliveden a little bit more friendly to the housing of these collections responsibly. Um, The implications for the management of the fund, I think I just wanna put into some perspective from the boots on the ground. The fund is a non-interest bearing account. It is not there gaining money for us. It is also not a lot of money, it's about $100,000. Um, Meanwhile, uh, I want to manage expectations about this fund within my own organization. I don't want the board of directors to give up its responsibility for fundraising for our collection storage projects by dipping into the fund. Um, Meanwhile, and I don't come to the museum business by way of collections, but my understanding of a disposition fund is it can be really useful in acquiring things that we need and Clivedon has expanded its interpretation to include the telling of the stories of the indentured, enslaved, and immigrant workers at the site, and we would like to be able to draw on those funds should artifacts come to light uh, or come to market where we may be able to serve the new interpretation from um, uh, the purchase of items. So we want to be careful about how to, to um, use this fund while also being responsible from the site management and the collections management perspectives. So the limits of the account uh, um, uh, go hand in hand with also establishing proper uh, procedures for use of the account within our own organization uh, for suitable projects versus uh, for just keeping it aside for acquisitions. Also, um, the board is at work right now setting up a little bit of a policy that just says here are the conditions by which we could make recommendations for the use of the disposition funds. And we are preparing a proposal. In fact, we've just sent a, a draft to Catherine and Carrie. Um, we are preparing a proposal for a small use to do two things, um, purchase some of the conservation materials for the Garrett as well as do some bricks and mortar work on the facade of the garret where the dormer windows are uh, in such a state of disrepair that they won't be able to provide a good envelope for the third floor storage. So we would consider this appropriate to the direct care and not necessarily possible without um, an expanded sense of what collections management is under this new uh, uh, collections management policy. And uh, finally, I would just say that um, why we've expanded this was because places like Uppsala went out of business because they didn't engage their community. And activating the collections in ways that can serve engagement with our community is what our new mission is about. People come to historic sites to see the collections, to see the interpretation, to see things within the situation and within the context so we can explain what matters and how they uh, mean things to each individual visitor in a dialogue with the site. And the collections are a primary uh, artifact that helps us give life to history through how we use it. So we take this responsibility very seriously and to know that some of the steps we've taken build on earlier steps taken 10 years ago. But don't let Uppsala's happen to you. They, uh, it, without house museums really engaging communities, um, you know Upsala is a paragraph in Donna Harris's book about merging with another site. So with that said, um, I just really wanted to open it up for all of us to take some questions, combining the legal implications, the, the the implications for the field, and the implications for management like site directors like I have to worry about uh, within the organization. Uh, so thank you.
0: Questions? I think, is there a person gone? I think there was a wireless mic somewhere, but maybe the sound people are gone. Um. Yeah, yeah, I will. Okay, we'll start over here. Um, you, you've been
2: using the word landscapes a lot. I guess I, I'm just curious how you actually define landscape. Is it a garden area? Is it um,
0: maybe... How is that thought? Okay, um, so the question was, you know, how are we defining landscapes? Um, and, you know, really, I mean, for us, obviously, you know, cultural landscapes can be a number of different things, right, and I mean, you know, across the National Trust, again, you saw the the beautiful sort of garden landscape of Filoli that is, you know, highly designed and, and filled with pieces of collections, but it's very interpreted for the public, right, so that's a landscape that we define. The same thing, though, a, a, a highly agricultural landscape, we have them at Belgrove in the Shenandoah Valley. We have them at the Farnsworth House in um, in Plano, Illinois. But again, as long as we're interpreting those landscapes for the public, we continue them. You know, we we call them a part of the landscape uh, collection. But also, you know, this is an interesting test for us at, at Belgrove too. We actually own their fantastic um, Civil War era tr- entrenchments um, that are are you know, incredibly evocative um, landscape features. They are not currently accessible to the public, so we wouldn't consider them to be in this landscape um, collection. However, um, we are at work with the National Park Service to extend an existing trail system to allow people to be able to access those landscapes, those entrenchments. And so as we do, um, those, those landscape features, that landscape will move into this collection because again we're we're interpreting it for the public. Does that answer way. So even any and this comes back to what constitutes direct care in those situations. Sure. You know,
3: routine maintenance,
4: knowing that sort of thing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely no, I mean that's and do you want to answer this one? Yeah I was just gonna ask her to go ahead and get him the mic. Good, good.
2: Okay. So, and and this returns to the concept of what actually constitutes direct care of the collection. And in the case of a landscape, say historic garden or any of these other things you described, um, does the maintenance to make that accessible fall under how you might use the disposition proceeds?
1: fantastic question. And we've had a lot of discussions about this and where to draw that line. And I think that's going to be the real challenge of the implementation. So we're going to share that going forward. So the example that that I uh, think of is at Philip Johnson's house, at the glass house, there are uh, paths that go to the house that he designed that are very specifically designed. That have metal rails that hold gravel in place. So, could we use disposition proceeds to repair a bent piece of that metal that knocked the the path out of uh, plumb? Yes, I would say that would direct that would be direct care without any question. But can we apply it for the regular raking of that gravel? I think that's a more difficult challenge. Could we use it to replace the gravel more regularly? That, again, is a closer question because it's closer to maintenance. Um, At the outset of this, we're looking for projects that very clearly fall on the side of direct care so that we can begin to build a practice that distinguishes between those things. Um, and I'm not sure we have consensus on our committee. I think Carrie has a viewpoint, uh, Catherine has a viewpoint, I have a viewpoint, uh, David undoubtedly will have a viewpoint when he proposes something. So we're going to continue to work on this. But those are the ways we're trying to distinguish them. And I'd love for you to answer as well.
0: No, I, no. the only thing. Sorry, the only thing I would add um, is is exactly that, that, you know, we just, we heard again and again from AAM and ALSH, ASLH, that, that building a body of practice around this was so important. Um, And we felt like, again, the National Trust, as a preservation organization, was particularly well equipped to build that body of practice around this. But I'll also say that, that Carrie has been working on, you know, really sort of standardizing the way that these requests come to us so that we can sort of consider them in a standardized way. And then, as David said, as case studies. We can be able to sort of push these out so that they can become, again, a, a body of practice, I think is the term we keep coming back to around issues exactly like what you've described. But we also felt like um, we needed to be able to consider those questions, and we were not able to consider them in the previous policy. So I think the, the act of consideration is really important to this. Amen. Mm-hmm.
1: I would. I would also add that um, we very consciously chose not to try to predefine all of these applications, because the instant we started doing that, the policy became impossible to write, and so we really fell back on going to the judgment of the professionals and the collections committee, and ultimately our board subcommittee to help us make those decisions applying these ethical standards.
0: I'm just going to say one more thing. Because we haven't talked about it so much, but it was such an important part of this process was us talking to the Accreditation Commission at AAM. That was just a huge, huge part of this. They actually, some folks were in the audience at an AAM session we did, and then they invited us to come and talk with them. And one of the things, just to build on what Tom said, one of the things that they specifically came back to, as well as AASLH's standards and ethics, was the need to empower our collections committee to to make these decisions to balance that with board oversight that that's a sort of check and balance system but again to really um, to really empower this committee and again we just it's another reason we felt like um, we were a great organization to think this through because we really do have across 27 properties an incredibly talented staff of directors and curators and interpreters um, to help us work through this. There a question
4: in the back? Well, I, I have two things. One of them is I really look forward to seeing how you work through these these questions because I was sitting here wondering the same thing. You know, if our uh, roof leaks, can we apply it to that? Because, uh, you know, if you have a leaky roof, and, and not in a historic building, but more in, you know, the storage spaces are leaking. Um, so I look forward to seeing how you guys work through this Um, as the years, you know, as the time goes on. (laughs) Because it it is really sticky, you know. Um, But stepping back one level, um, I was curious about when you take items to auction, how you handle the the public perception of that. I know that's one thing. I I work at a small historical society rather than a historic house, and we're going through the deaccession process. And wanting to be really careful about um, once we've... You know, tried to share with other museums and, and gone through the steps, and something is going to be offered up for sale. Um, you know, you don't want to have uh, the auction on the grounds of the museum because it looks like you're <laughs> keeping the lights on. Even if you have a, a policy in place, there's, there's a definite public perception issue. And so um, I'm wondering if you could step back just a little bit and tell me about how the, the sale process works when, you, when you've chosen to deaccession an item.
0: I'll talk a little bit, and then I'll let Tom talk a little bit about um, title and, and issues like that. I mean, I think part of it, you know, in terms of public perception is um, is that, you know, we really do not take the accessioning lightly at all, um, that there is, as David described, a 28-month process. So by the time we get to that point, you know, we are very sure that that it's the right thing to do, that it's the ethical thing to do, um, and that, that as Tom can talk about, that we do have the title, that all the the sort of legal pieces are in place. So I guess I would just, and I think that we also, um, you know, we're very transparent. This question came up uh, just last week or the week before. You know, we're, we're also very transparent about that it that it did come from our collection. I mean, we're not trying to hide that at all, but we do offer the explanation. Again, and I think it's a, you know, a teachable moment to use that over for overuse phrase, but I think it's an opportunity, again, for us to talk about stewardship and issues of, of deaccessioning. So we, I guess we trust our process is, I think, part of the example, I mean, a part of the answer to the public, but I, I want Tom to talk a little bit about the issue of title, too, um, and how we get comfortable with that.
1: Um, Thank you, Catherine. And I also will invite David to talk because of the experience of selling the objects from Uppsala. Um, And uh, before I talk about title a little bit, we did get an inquiry from the Attorney General's office about the um, uh, disposition of the objects from Uppsala which we were able to address by sharing with them, Here, here, here's our policy, here's how we decide how to sell things, here's what we use the disposition proceeds for. And they actually questioned whether we could use the disposition proceeds for direct care of collections. They wrote back to us and said, no, we understood you could only use it for acquisition. And so we explained to them that that's a standard from the art museum world, not applied in the historic site world, that AASLH and AAM permit us to use it for direct care, and they were satisfied with that answer. So we do get these questions. They do come up. It's not just a um, philosophical discussion. It actually does happen. On title, one of the things that we do for every deaccessioning request is um, someone from the general counsel 's office has to sign off on the um, uh, each object that we have clear title f- to it and um, and we 're extremely pragmatic about that i 've done a session on this at a a m where uh, like most House Museum uh, organizations, you know we have thousands of objects where we may have no documentation other than um, then found in-house at time of acquisition. Is that that fiatop? Is that what we call it? Fiatop. Um, but, you know, if it's a pitchfork and we've had it for 40 years, you know, we assume we own it. If somebody comes forward and says, no, I own that pitchfork, then we'll <laughs> grapple with it. But to date, no one has claimed any of the pitchforks. Um, so we have a very pragmatic approach to it, but we do a thorough process and look at all the documentation to see what we have. So there, this, as as David said, rigorous with a capital R. We go through a lot of processes before we get there. And now, David, for the the public perception piece.
2: Yeah, and uh, that's a really important point. And, and like any other change, it brings conflict and has to be managed and part of the 28 months was a kind of building from concentric circles out so that when the Attorney General did come, and I think it was twice, uh, with more or less complaints that had been lodged by a descendant through the Attorney General's office, um, we knew, based on the process, where we stood with provenance, title, uh, reasons why, and that meant that Within our own organization we were confident and we knew we had backing from within the trust because we had been transparent and working this through. So putting your ducks in a row means that you're not gonna have to um, handle the what might be blowback or negative PR uh, because there will be PR. And you do have to get ahead of that but it won't be perfect. But it can be rested on the facts and the trust built into the process. And that may not always be apparent to the public, but it can come out confidently from how you message, well, we went through this process, and here are the facts. Um, After the attorney general came calling, uh, the sale was uh, uh, um, promoted and and announced in the Philadelphia Inquirer with a big headline that made me spit out my coffee that morning. Uh, Great artifacts from the Cleveland Collection on sale. Uh, (laughs) You know, so... (laughs) <laughs> that meant, <laughs> and and that is what will likely happen, even at the small county historical society, with uh, such a process. So being able to be able to re- rely back on, well, this is why we spent two and a half years working this through, becomes a, 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 a strength, while also just w- riding the fact that we're in this untenable position as leaders. The field demands. Leadership change uh, is needed like Uppsala or in many of these organizations and to lead change is necessarily going to ruffle some feathers, and we just have to be adults and walk through with a fact based explanation for how this happened what,
1: one other thought there is a there is a tension between how much you publicize the sale and and how many proceeds you're going to get. So my reaction to that headline was, excellent. We're going to get more money for the disposition uh, fund. Um, and we've done, we've done everything we need to do to make sure we're on solid ground.
2: And, and le- just the other small point is there's a lot of listening that goes into this process. And it, it may seem like we're just looking at Excel spreadsheets and data base, uh, you know, collections database material or provenance records and legal title. But we're actually listening to one another for different viewpoints. I I don't have a legal viewpoint. I don't have a collections viewpoint. So uh, on the basis of the strength and confidence we've learned from the variety of viewpoints we've considered, we're able to manage what might be public relations messaging, which is inevitable in the process.
3: I was just gonna make the comment at Anyway. that is also used by Colonial Williamsburg and a number of other larger museums. And generally, there's a statement at that part of the catalog. This is from the collection of XY's museum. It's being accession. It's going into the collections fund, which will do the following thing. And I think that's been very helpful, particularly because you've got a lot of savvy people there. And many of those people in the auction, in those chairs in the auction house are your donors of objects in the future. So you really have to build some trust there. And we've also gotten the habit of could, could telling you use
1: the mic it's
3: being it uh, there we go, and we've also gotten in the habit of of uh attorney general know ahead of time, uh, so you're up uh.
4: Um, I, I haven't heard much talk of donor intent and that's something that I know our board grapples with as we consider deaccessioning um, and it's it's kind of dicey sometimes and I wonder if that came into um, your discussions at all in terms of what the original donors of the artifacts or the buildings um, kind of intended and how you're taking that into consideration with your decision making and your policy making. Um, I also just wanted to clarify that it doesn't sound like proceeds could be put into endowment for the kind of ongoing support of the house. And and I don't know if you come down and actually say that explicitly or if that's just um, kind of assumed. And then I'm curious what you're going to do with Uppsala since you won't need it for collection storage for Cliveden. um, What what are you going to do with it?
1: So I'll start with donor intent. Um, I didn't say it because it's, um, it's, implicit in everything we do. I mean, we're not going to deaccession something that's got a restriction on it without going back to the donor. So that's uh, it's expressed in other ways, but it's not a key part of the uh, policy. It it states that we have to follow donor intent. Uh, So it's a part of that process of looking at every object that's being proposed for deaccessioning we go through the documentation, and if there is some sort of restriction, then we honor it. So, for instance, um, we recently uh, had a disposition request from Chesterwood in western Massachusetts. And there, there's actually not a binding um, restriction, but the donor expressed a non-binding request that if we ever dispose of something, it be offered to another institution. So we honored that precatory uh, request, even though it was not binding, and we would always do that Um, endowment. Um, We actually, I don't think we put it in the policy, but that question has come up whether if we get a really huge chunk of money from some specific uh, disposition, whether it could be used for endowment. And I think we would be open to that, but I think it would be a decision made by our board of trustees. So that would be bumped up the line probably um, and would be an unusual circumstance, not a a common circumstance. And I'm happy for either of you to add to that. And then, Apsula,
2: Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to put two cannons on the front lawn on October fourth when we reenact the battle, Uh, and um, we're actually considering a variety of uses. Uh, Currently, it serves as the headquarters of the Germantown Avenue Business Improvement District, uh, which um, uh, we serve as a landlord for that. And Clifton was a co-founder of this improvement district, so it's it's really in keeping with our new mission. Uh, we've looked at a variety of nonprofit profit uh, sharing uses and commercial and, and even private uh, interest in, it, it's still zoned residential, so there are a, a variety of options. We've not come down on anything, but right now uh, there's a restoration project going on on the windows and on the portico, and I think we removed a two foot long beehive uh, from the soffit on Thursday afternoon. So uh, there's actually quite a bit of work going on, but. Uh, what it becomes to uh, 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 is still uh, a question we're having with our community about what the community needs from the building and what the building wants to be. Uh, And we're shoring up in our roles as responsible preservation stewards by just taking good care of a building that was a, a perfect storm of deferred maintenance, obsolescence, and lack of engagement with the community. Max,
5: uh, having sat on the collections committee at the National Trust, this is certainly an improvement over what um, we had to deal with and grapple with. So I, I appreciate your work on this. Um, and and one of the things I found very useful when we're going through that process is developing the collection scope, not a collections plan, a collection scope, which is very different, because the committee has to decide is this appropriate or not appropriate, and knowing having the site figure that out was really important. And, and, and Cliveden was, the, I think, the first one that we did that with. Does that sound right, Tom?
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
5: Okay. So that's, if people want to see one, that's a good model to look at because it is more than just a sentence. Um, it really describes that. The second thing I found really h- helpful, and you touched on it, Tom, if you could talk a little bit more, which is a statement of valuation and appraisal. And what do you mean by valuation? Is it purely monetary, or is it look at other criteria for determining significance?
1: Sure. Um, so what our board wanted us to do, actually, was talk about the monetary value. What's it worth? Um, and that's to help inform their decision-making about whether to uh, approve the uh, deaccessioning or not. I was a little uncomfortable with it. Um, but I understand why they would want that information before it comes forward to them. Um, and it's not an unusual thing to have as a part of a, a disposition request. In fact, many institutions uh, require it. Um, so, But it is entirely a monetary piece. I wanted to emphasize something that I, I um, uh, touched on, You know, I think we all get that question periodically from a new trustee. Can't you just sell some of this stuff and make our financial problems go away? How many in the room have heard that? I have heard it. Um, And, you know, you have to do a lot of education around the ethical standards, which, frankly, you know, often sound irrational to people outside our field. Uh, We understand why those ethical standards are there, but other people don't view these things in the same way that we do. Um, What I wanted to emphasize is that there's no process in our revised policy where a trustee would just say that and it could be acted on. The request of disposition has to arise from the site and then it comes up to the collections committee through this rigorous process before it even gets up to our trustees. So if one of our trustees suggested something like that, um, you know, we would share the information with them about how deaccessioning works, about what the ethical standards are and 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 would try to just use it as an educational opportunity. Max, I hope that addresses your question.
0: And I just wanted to add one thing on the sort of flip side of that because um we they talked about this yesterday in, in Ken Torino's session about we, we also had a lot of conversations about especially around this valuation requirement not wanting to make it unnecessarily difficult though to deaccession and, and we really did you know we understood as Tom said the reason for it in some cases but as we were also recently deaccessioning you know a box of thumbtacks at Chesterwood um, we also as we wrote into the policy the our ability and actually the collection, the director of collections ability to waive that requirement in cases where there was clearly very Normal. minimal value. So we, we at the same time wanted the protection, but I think allowed for those situations where you just need to do a sort of house cleaning, deaccession without an appraisal.
4: The rigorous uh, disposition process that you keep referring to, I uh, understand it's separate. I assume it's also formalized in
0: some type of written document. Is that online for us to use as an example,
4: or would you be willing to share it?
0: Well, absolutely share it. Yes, and you saw, um, you, know, you saw an example, a beautifully done example, actually, from uh, Decatur House, I think, that was, um, that was on the screen. But another thing, and this is what Carrie's really working on, on both the requests for deaccessioning and the request for the use of disposition proceeds is getting to a really good common template um, so that, again, we can continue to use these as case studies without a great deal of other sort of administrative effort um, on our part. But, yeah, we're happy to share them. Absolutely.
1: Um, yeah. On the sharing front, the, this uh, policy change is going to be highlighted in history. Um, this coming, history news, this coming issue. Um, and if you'll leave your email or something, we'll be happy to share the policy with you. I think we're out of time. I think we're out of time. Thank you, much.